Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of health policy at Stanford University and the co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration. He holds an MD as well as a PhD in economics from Stanford University and directs Stanford Center for Demography and Economics of Health and Aging. He has published hundreds of articles on health policy, epidemiology, and public health, with his recent research focusing primarily on policy response to the coronavirus pandemic. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Adi. So starting off today, I'd like to ask you to briefly introduce yourself and your research regarding the pandemic and tell us a bit about the Great Barrington Declaration. Sure. So uh, I'm a, a Professor Jay Bhattacharya. I'm a professor of medicine, uh, well, actually now health policy uh, at Stanford. I was professor of medicine for 20 years. Um, and uh, I have an MD and a PhD in economics. Uh, I have been working on a, a lot of different topics during the pandemic, but the, the, the earliest work focused on seroprevalence, measuring how, how widespread the disease was in the population in, in April, of, April 2020. Um, uh, since then, I've gone on to, to focus on the policy responses to COVID, uh, in particular, the eff efficacy and harms of lockdowns. Um, some of that work brought me to, to this, this idea of the, the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, the Great Barrington Declaration was, was, as a, uh, was a, doc, a, a document that I signed with Sunetra Gupta, a professor at Oxford University, and, uh, and Martin Kuldorf, professor at Harvard. Uh, the the uh, at, at Great Barrington, Massachusetts. That's why it's called the Great Barrington Declaration. The uh, the idea of the Great Barrington Declaration is premised on two basic facts. First, there is a very steep age gradient in the harm from COVID nineteen infection. The old old have a thousand fold higher or, or more of risk of dying from COVID infection should, should, should they be infected uh, than the young. And this is this this was true before the vaccines, and actually it's just true even after the vaccines. Although the, the vaccines greatly reduce the risk of COVID overall, COVID harm overall, it's still a very, very steep age gradient. Um, at the same time, the, the lockdowns that we have used and had to address the epidemic, are, are, have, which are premised on the idea that if we just keep people apart from one another, have actually done an incredible amount of harm to the health of, of the population at large. Um, they've stopped people from getting basic care for uh, for uh, for cancer cancer screenings they have caused enormous psychological harm um they have uh in poor countries they've led to a hundred million people being thrown into poverty um uh, in uh in in uh, uh the estimates suggest that 80 million people worldwide have been thrown into dire food insecurity hundreds of thousands of young children dead from starvation um in south asia alone uh, the, 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 the harms from the lockdown, what, which uh, have been invisible to, to many rich, richer people, have been absolutely devastating for the poor basically everywhere. Um, and uh, if you put these two facts together, these are both undeniable scientific facts, uh, well, what, you, what you see is that for the older population, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, I'm sorry, sorry, for the younger population, the harms from the lockdown have outweighed whatever putative benefits there may have been in the reduction of the harms from COVID. Um, because y younger people are not particularly, uh, do not, the COVID does not, is not the primary threat they face. In fact, lockdowns pose a much greater threat. Uh, whereas for the older people, it's quite vital to provide mechanisms to protect them from COVID because the COVID is such a severe disease for them. 
So that's the Great Barrington. The idea of the Great Barrington Declaration, premised on those two facts, is to provide focused protection for the older population. We can talk about how how that might go, and for the younger population to lift the lockdowns. The lockdowns are are an immoral imposition on their lives, harming them, uh, and actually. In some sense, what's come out is that they have not actually protected the old. The premise of the lockdowns was that the old would be protected by by this this sort of shutdown of society, um, and that actually has not actually worked out very well. Um, At the same time, the young have been posed great harm. Um, So that's that's the that's the idea: lift the lockdowns, uh, provide focused protection for the old. Okay, so today I'd like to discuss much of your work evaluating policy responses to the pandemic in the broader context, beginning at the start of the pandemic. So at the start of the pandemic, you were part of the team that conducted one of the first zero prevalence studies in the United States to determine the prevalence of the virus in the community, as well as the mortality rate, which at the time differed from the WHO estimate. So can you please tell us a bit more about this study and how its findings changed, challenged the public health response? Sure. Um, so uh, I actually ran two different seroprevalence studies. So when the, the WHO first started talking about the mortality rate from this disease, they said that it was the, the fatality rate was 3.4%. That is a very high number for any infectious disease. Uh, and what uh, it was, but it was premised on this uh, a very simple idea that you just find the people who died with the disease, that's the numerator, divide by the number of people that have been identified with the disease, that's the denominator, and you get 3.4. The problem is that in March of 2020, February 2020, the set of people that were identified as having the disease were the, the most severely ill. We didn't have very many testing resources. And uh, so many of the people that were identified were the ones with the most severe disease. It, for many respiratory viruses, and that's true going back decades, I, I mean, I, I worked on the H1N1 flu epidemic, um, and I noticed the same thing there it often turns out that there are many times more infections than cases, many times more infections than cases that are identified. And in the context of H1N1, that, that was true. There was a, there was a hundred times in the earth more infections than cases identified. Um, the, uh, the, I had that same hypothesis in the early days of this epidemic that maybe COVID was much more widespread than we had thought. Um, so to check that hypothesis, to test that hypothesis, I, I helped organize uh, a couple of seroprevalence studies. Seroprevalence studies are measures of antibody prevalence, antibodies that are specific to COVID in the population at large, um, and uh, in Santa Clara County and in LA County. The primary findings from those studies were that there were almost 40 or 50 times more infections than cases in both those locations in April of 2020, uh, which makes sense. But we were looking at this community po- level population. Many of the uh, the the, the reason there weren't so many testing resources there are now, um, and uh, many it's, it turned out that there there were lots of people who had had COVID recovered. And some of them, many of them didn't even know it. Many were completely asymptomatic. Uh, maybe 30, 40% were completely asymptomatic and wholly uh, mild cases. Um, and, and and they had antibodies to show for it. Um, so there's a few things that I learned from this. One is that the prevalence was, I think, like 3 or 4% in both places. Um, that meant that the disease had quite a long way to go. The epidemic had quite a long way to go. And of course, that's where in November of 2021, that's still true. I mean, obviously, this proved true. Second, that the uh, that the that the number of that the uh, uh, disease was actually quite much more widespread than people had thought. People thought that that uh, while it's relatively well contained, if we just lock down hard enough, we will be able to stop the disease from spreading. The the results of that study: three or four percent of the population already infected, even though we didn't know it was so high. 
um, meant that the lockdown could not possibly work to suppress the disease down to zero. There was no chance of the disease ever being suppressed using the strategies that we had adopted. And that was known in April, 2020. And then uh, finally, the, the disease, the mortality rate from the disease is much lower than, than the 3.4% that the World Health Organization had said. It was more on the order of 0.2% for infection fatality rate. Um, that number, by the way, has now been shown by 100 seroprevalence studies. Uh, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a meta-analysis conducted by Professor John Ioannidis that, have, um, that demonstrates this 0.2% this, this in terms of worldwide infection fatality rate. Places that have an older population have higher infection fatality rate because older people, if they, if they get infected, die at higher rates. Places that are younger have lower infection fatality rates. So this, for instance, is why I think Africa has had such a low infection fatality rate. They have such a young population. Um, all three things were known from just those studies alone. Okay. So throughout this pandemic, you have heavily criticized mass lockdowns, which seem to have been the initial response for most public health officials. So you've cited statistics about the inadvertent harms of lockdowns that most people fail to account for and have instead recommended an alternative called focus protection, which calls for every possible measure to protect the most vulnerable, whilst allowing the rest of society to operate as normally as possible. So could you please tell us a bit more about why you so strongly oppose lockdowns and why focus protection would achieve better results? Sure. So uh, first, the, the lockdowns, I think I've already mentioned some of the harms in them. Um, the lockdowns are a very blunt tool. Uh, the, the, uh, the idea that we can stop society from functioning at all, where we keep each other apart from, keep apart from one another uh, for an extended period of time is folly. Uh, in fact, even in the initial lockdowns, that wasn't the case. Their, their hospital workers had to work. They, we immediately designated a class of workers as essential and said, okay, you have to work. And these, the non-essential could stay at home and be protected. Uh, if you look at the track, the data on, on, on mobility, what you find is that after only a, only a few couple of weeks, the lockdowns were no longer uniform. Poorer people could not afford to lock down and did not lock down um, and were exposed to the virus. Richer people, um, the laptop class, stayed at home, served by the essential class, the, 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 the essential workers. The lockdowns actually, in a sense, are trickle-down epidemiology. They're not actually, it's not possible to shut society down. It needs to function. And many, many people did, despite being older uh, and high risk, they were told, well, you have to go work. Um, so the, the lockdowns uh, could not possibly succeed to actually suppress the disease, even, even in principle, as soon as you understand the deep inequality embedded within the lockdown. Uh, I mean, I, that was my, my, one of my very first reactions to the lockdown was that was how unequal and how inequitable they would be. My other reaction when I first heard about the lockdowns was that if if you if you think about society as this deeply interconnected web of of activity, where where we cooperate with each other uh, both through market settings and through non market settings, um, we we to stop that from occurring was going to produce unintended harmful consequences. Uh, and it wouldn't just be reductions in economic activity, although those are, have been critically important, but also reductions in, in, in activities of basic public health, right? So people stayed home with heart attacks rather than go to the hospital. Hospital censuses went dropped by, by half through much of 2020 because of the lockdowns. Um, people skipped absolutely essential services. They skipped vaccination for the children, uh, vaccination for, for diseases like measles, mumps, and rubella. They skipped uh, basic 
services for themselves, like cancer screening. Many women are dying this year of stage four breast cancer that should have been picked up in earlier stages last year. Many men and women similarly are going to die from colon cancer that should have or late stage that should have been picked up earlier. Diabetes management. Uh, there are enormous public health needs in our society, and we set them all aside in service of protection against a single infectious disease. There was bound to be health harms, and there actually have been. And the and the problem is worse in 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 um, in poor countries, as I've said. So the lockdowns, I think, uh, were, were a blunt tool that couldn't succeed and didn't, and caused caused great harm. At the same time, the, the older population absolutely needs to be protected from this disease. The lockdowns don't do that because they don't stop the spread of the disease very clearly. Uh, there is actually no technology we possess to stop the spread of the disease. What we do did have back uh, back in 2020 were ideas that we could have used to protect older people. So just to, just a very, very simple one. Um, we tried to keep hospital beds open by sending older patients back to nursing homes, COVID infected patients back to nursing homes in New York, New Jersey, in, in Quebec and, and, and uh, many other, in several other places. The idea was let's keep our hospital beds empty so that we can treat COVID patients. Well, that may have succeeded, but at the cost of harming old people in nursing homes who were particularly vulnerable. The great deaths that we saw in the early days of the epidemic were because of that a mistake about what actually needed to be conserved. It wasn't hospital beds. What needed to be conserved was the, uh, was the, the, uh, was the protection of older populations from exposure to the virus. Um, a focused protection idea was simply not be to not send COVID infection patients into nursing homes. We finally started to do that sort of in, in, uh, in, in uh, sort of later in the epidemic. Um, so there are other ideas that are possible that were possible before the vaccine. So for instance, uh, for people living, uh, older people living at home alone, um, what we should have done is organize uh, delivery of groceries and other services so that they didn't have to go out and get exposed to the virus uh, in order to have basic, we, basic life go on. Um, we, organ we, in effect, organized delivery of services for the rich. You know, they could just order Uber Eats or whatnot. Uh, but instead of instead of that kind of completely ineffectual approach, we could have taken the trillions that we spent and organized home delivery of services for older people living in uh, at home. And even, even that could have been done at, 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 a, at a local scale. Um, uh, the, the other idea... Uh, the other kind of idea is is protecting people living in multi generational homes, right? Oh, like you have grandma living with grandson. Many many uh, many uh, communities, minority communities, actually have these kinds of living arrangements. Uh, uh, lots of communities have have these kind of living arrangements. There, the idea would be that if grandson uh, suspects that he's been exposed or has some or or, or grandma is concerned, you can provide public health, local public health could provide a service where grandma can go have a hotel room for a couple a few days until grandson's sure that he's no longer infectious or that he actually isn't infectious with, with it through a test or something. Um, all of these kind of activities require an understand a deep understanding at a local level of the uh, the living arrangements of older people. And it is completely within the the capacity of local public health to to, to undertake activities that would have protected older people much better than they actually did. Instead, they thought that lockdowns, local public health thought that lockdowns would be good enough to protect the old, and, they, and, it, and it was not good enough. Uh, once the vaccines came online, well, the idea should be, and it has been, to prioritize the old for vaccination. We did that in the United States. However, this should have been a global 
idea, not simply a local one. Rather than prioritizing the, the vaccination of, of, of children who are face very low risk from disease, we should instead be using these vaccine doses to prioritize the vaccination of the old worldwide. There are still an incredible number of older people living around the world who have not been had the, the vaccine and still face incredible risk from COVID infection. Um, so I think that, that those those were those were the, the the ideas of focus protection. I could go on about them. There's a lot more detail one could do. Uh, what I was hoping from the Great Barrington Declaration was that it would it w- would spur the creativity of local public health to uh, to to come up with better ideas for focus protection. Um, and in some cases it, that 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 actually worked. Uh, but in many cases, local public health essentially just said, "Well, we, it's impossible. We can't do it. We just have to rely on lockdowns." Okay, so about a year ago, we had the emergence of COVID vaccines, which showed promising results, especially in protecting against serious illness, hospitalization, and death. So jumping forward to the present, we're seeing the use of vaccine mandates become more and more pervasive. Unvaccinated people are barred in many cases all around the world from access to employment, travel, and an ever-increasing list of other things. So this is something that I've really struggled to understand the logic behind. So as far as I understand it, the vaccine provides great individual protection, but doesn't eradicate transmission. So given that fact, I wanted to ask you about your opinion on vaccine requirements for things like travel and employment and whether they make any sense. Okay, so um, the key thing about vaccines generally is that they have two different kinds of of, uh, of effects, one public and one private. Um, so, and, and most vaccines that are in general use have both a public and private component. Uh, the pub, The public component is that the vaccines stop the person that's vaccinated from spreading the disease. The pri- uh, and so if I get vaccinated, I protect you because uh, if we are in commu- you know sort of a community with each other, I'm vaccinated. I will no longer spread disease to you. That's the benefit that attain that you you get from my being vaccinated. There's also potentially a, a uh, there's also a private benefit, right? So if I am vaccinated, then I will not suffer from the disease or at least the the, the, the worst manifestations of the disease that against which I'm vaccinated. Almost every vaccine that we have in common use has both that public and private component. This vaccine, this COVID vaccine, uh, actually, after only a few months of time, does not stop disease spread. In fact, I think the peak protection against disease infection is around one or two or three months after vaccination. And after that starts to decline, Uh, there are enormous Cohort studies have demonstrated this in Qatar, uh, in in uh, in in uh, Northern California, a whole bunch of other places. Uh, in the UK, they've just demonstrated that the vaccine protection against infection declines very sharply. To, so after by, by, by about five months after vaccination, the vaccine efficacy against infection drops to about twenty percent. Um, which means that if you have a sort of equal populations, um, the a uh, hundred cases will be unvaccinated and 80 will be vaccinated, a very, very substantial number of vaccine breakthrough cases. Um, so, and we've seen that heavily vaccinated societies uh, like I- Iceland have seen enormous outbreaks of cases. Gibraltar and nearly 100% adult vaccinations have seen huge increases in cases despite the high rates of vaccination. So the public benefit provided these vaccines is, is low. Uh, at least after a few months' time, the private benefit is substantial and and, and durable. So at seven, eight, nine months, seven, uh, there still remains a very high efficacy of this vaccine against severe disease. So if you get the vaccine, you will protect yourself against severe disease. Uh, that is hospitalizations and death if you should get COVID. 
Um, and so the vaccine provides private protection, but not, not durable public protection. It's very different than other vaccines. Uh, just think through the economics of this. Uh, well, in that case, there, there is not an argument, like normally the argument you would make for public uh, for a vaccine mandate would be a, some sort of Pigouvian argument. Because there's this public protection, uh, the socially optimal level of vaccination will be higher than the private decision making. But given that there's limited public benefit, that Pigouvian argument falls apart. Um, there's only limited benefit from a public benefit from vaccination uh, and great private benefit. In that case, you don't need a mandate. What you need is good persuasion, especially for the people who are most vulnerable from this disease, that this vaccine is, is a good idea. Uh, you, you may want subsidies uh, for, for reasons having to do with, you know, health, sort of health equity and so on. Um, and that makes sense to me, but it makes absolutely no sense to, to, to require a vaccine mandate in this set. And, and actually one other thing to add on top of that, and this, uh, based on the science of this, many, many people had, have had COVID and recovered from it. I, I think in my estimate, somewhere more than half the American population, um, for instance, have had COVID and recovered from it. Um, if you uh, now COVID recovery provides very very strong and durable immunity, uh, estimates from cohort studies suggest that at one year reinfection rates are something on the order of 0.5 to one percent, and the reinfections when they happen are mild, um, milder than the initial infection uh, from people who. So so that means that many people the the marginal benefit for the vaccine is lower than it would be for someone who's completely exposed to covid never never had the vaccine the the, the, the vaccine before or never had the covid recovery before um the vaccine mandates have placed and, and many of the people who got covid were essential workers people who were asked to work during covid even when there wasn't a vaccine and recovered at this point what's happening the mandates are being used to fire huge numbers of these essential workers who don't have don't have a very very high marginal benefit from the vaccine who worked through the pandemic were heroes of last year nurses firefighters policemen um who worked through the whole epidemic um despite being the risk of despite facing the risk of covid and uh and instead now are are, are being are essentially being fired because they don't want the vaccine the the, the mandates in, in are in that sense not just don't make economic sense from the, the sort of the Peruvian uh logic we just talked about but also i think are cruel they 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 harm the working class in a way that that that, that absolutely shocks me and i don't really understand given these basic undisputed scientific facts, why we are pursuing such a policy. So I think your response here challenges the public health response um, more so in some other countries than in the United States, um, especially in places like New Zealand, Australia, the United Kingdom. So specifically um, in, in some of these countries, what they've done, they've um, implemented like um, minimum vaccine requirements before lockdowns can be lifted. So the entire society is locked down, for example, in New Zealand until the country hits a 90% vaccination rate. Um, and also um, the, the same thing in, in some other countries. Um, what we're seeing in a lot of these countries is very old or um, people over 65 or 70 um, have very high vaccination rates. And you know the, the younger people obviously don't, don't have vaccination rates as high. And so the entire society is kept locked down for um, months on end. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask, um, with regard to you know, your response, if it is in fact you know, basic scientific knowledge, then why so many countries on the advice of epidemiologists are, are pursuing such such um, extreme policies? So I think New Zealand and Australia were 
uh, I, I think that the way to think about them is it's a it's a case of policy hysteresis. So they uh, when the when the virus arrived in 2020, early 2020, um, New Zealand and Australia were in their summer COVID low season. They their lockdowns, unlike North America and Europe, actually, were, which were when COVID arrived, it, it, it spread pretty widely with despite the lockdowns. Um, in New Zealand and Australia, they were actually successful in dropping COVID down down near to zero in early 2020. It looked like their lockdown has worked. Um, and that idea that the lockdown could work based on the evidence of, of, of early 2020 took hold of the populations there. They looked outside the rest of the world and said, oh, well, you guys just didn't lock down hard enough. You just you guys made a mistake. When in fact, what had happened was that COVID arrived during their low COVID season, when, it, when COVID doesn't spread very readily uh, during their summer. Um, and they have, you know, one international airport, which they locked one or two international airports, which they locked down. Um, and, uh, it, it, it seemed to have worked. This has locked them into a policy that, uh, that they've, that they've done, uh, that they've kept on going despite vast evidence that it doesn't work. Both Australia and New Zealand have had to lock down multiple times over and over again. Whenever there's a single case found, vast populations are locked down again with the attendant harms that we talked about, um, and then when they succeed at bringing it down to zero again, because they locked down hard, early and hard enough, um, they, they declare success. And then a, a couple of months later, they have to lock down again. I, I think I saw a statistic that Melbourne, for instance, in Australia and Victoria had, has had the, the most days of lockdowns of any other population on earth. And yet we have seen uh, in recent months, vast increases in the number of cases during, in, in, uh, in, in Melbourne, in, uh, in, in New South Wales, and, and, and even, in, in, um, uh, even in, in New Zealand, we're seeing cases come up. Um, it's not possible for a lockdown, even for a single island, to stop the, the disease from spreading. Um, the epidemiological uh, advice that has been given has been based on a false premise that somehow a country, a single country could lock itself down, isolate itself and keep the disease out forever. This disease has uh, has animal reservoirs, you know, dogs, cats, 80% uh, of deer in the US have COVID antibodies. Um, the the, the, uh, the uh, idea that the lockdowns could succeed in perpetuity is just, was just fantasy. Um, and, and I think a lot of the epidemiologists that have been arguing for this seem to me utterly blind to the collateral harms that they're of, that they're causing by their by their policies they put forward, and seem like they're they're uh, they're, they're like uh, uh, they don't they don't they don't understand the basic way this virus spreads. Um, you can't keep people out forever from an island nation uh, like as, as large as, as as New Zealand and Australia. Ultimately, they have to rejoin the international community, and at that point, they'll face risk. Uh, now, what they have done, I think, to their credit, and I, and I think this is definitely to their credit, is they've had a very successful vaccination campaign. Uh, some of it based on coercion, which I don't like, uh, but but the facts are that they've protected the vulnerable by, protect, by vaccinating the older population. Um, at that point, once the older population was vaccinated uh, in Australia, that happened just you know, within the last few months, um, they, they should have declared victory and opened up. 
because at that point, that is about as good as you're going to do. That's focused protection of the vulnerable um, and uh, it, by, by, by dint of vaccination. And then they could stop with the with the incredible violations of human rights that they've been engaging with. Rather, they, should, they, they could have just gone back to being democratic nations uh, that are committed to the, to the, to the civil rights of, its, of, their, of their people while protecting the old through the vaccines. Um, I can I say one, one bit of irony about this? Um, the, the vaccines could not have been developed and test could not have been tested in uh, in New Zealand and, and Australia. And the reason is simple: there weren't enough cases for the vaccine to be tested. In order to have a test of the vaccine, you need a population where the cases actually are. So, in a sense, New Zealand and Australia followed a a beggar thy neighbor epidemiology policy, a policy that essentially relied on other countries that were that had cases in order to get out of the the policy bind they put themselves in. Okay, so in addition to this sort of public perspective, I wanted to ask you how um, afraid vaccinated people should be at this stage um, of the pandemic. So despite the statistical improbability of a serious illness, many young vaccinated and healthy people have been afraid to go back to restaurants, gyms, malls, etc. A lot of parents are scared of sending their children back to school. So at this stage of the pandemic, I wanted to ask you, um, what would be the appropriate level of precaution for most of our viewers who are young and vaccinated? Do they still have any reason to be afraid? So um, the uh, let me just give you some sense of how what the statistics are for the infection fatality rate for the for the old versus the young because I t- I told you it was a thousand fold I didn't give you absolute numbers um, for the old if you're over the age of seventy the infection fatality the infection survival rate the, the, that is if you get infected what's the probability of surviving is something like 94 percent that's the survival rate for people who are older like seventy and up for the young. Let's say people who are under the age of 20, the infection survival rate is something like 99.9995%, something on that order. Uh, for the for someone in their 20s, it's 99.99%. Uh, you can do an estimate of your infection survival rate very simply. So just this is just a rule of thumb. It's not exact, but it's, it, it gets you in the ballpark. Um, so I'm 53 years old. My infection survival rate is 99.8%, or, or in other words, a 0.2% infection fatality rate. For every seven years of age above, you double. So someone who's 60 would have an infection fatality rate of 0.4% or infection survival rate of 99.6. If you, for every seven years of age below, you have. So someone who's uh, 46, uh, 53 minus seven would be about uh, 0.1% infection fatality rate or 99.9% survival rate. And if you go down for, for young people, you get into very low risks of death. Uh, the, uh, the vast majority of deaths have had uh, that have occurred due to COVID have been due to people among people who are older, people who are over, over the age of 70, I think are uh, 60% of the deaths or higher. Um, and so I think uh, the risk that people young people in particular face from COVID infection is incredibly low. Oh, uh, there are uh, there are some um, chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity that might increase your risk. But again, as a rule of thumb, if you are, are morbidly obese, then your risk for your age doubles. So if I were morbidly obese, my risk is 0.2%. Uh, if, I, if I'm not morbidly obese, double that is 0.4%. Is this um, for vaccinated um, people as no, well? This is, this, is, this is for unvaccinated people. This is for unvaccinated people. This is before. This, these are from the seroprevalence studies we talked about earlier. Uh, in the and, and this is for the, the, from the data come from the unvaccinated. The vaccine reduces the risk of mortality by ninety percent or higher, 80, 90 percent. 
uh, depending on the, the time and the, the individual. So um, it's, it's an order of magnitude reduction off of already a very low number for the young. Okay, so I think that that um, evidence clearly indicates that if you're young or middle aged, um, especially if you're you know healthy as in not obese or have diabetes, and vaccinated, um, there should be very very little reason, um, if any at all, for you well, to I mean, you be know, people people differ in their risk preference. I mean, who am I to say, right? If you're, if, but I would I would really strongly recommend it anyone who is so scared of COVID that's been vaccinated and are, and, and are young to look at what their lives are like, because they're not, they're, COVID is not, the avoidance of COVID, just as a, as a dad, for instance, I would never tell my parent, my kids, well, avoid this one risk and accept all these other risks in your life in order to avoid this one risk. That's just not wise. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not, as an economist, I don't, I don't have the right to tell anybody uh, what their preferences should be. But as a, as someone who's who wants the best for young people, I'd say think think carefully about what the the, the risks you actually face in your life are. COVID is very very far from the the highest risk. Okay, so finally, I wanted to ask you about the new Omicron variant um, discovered recently in South Africa. So, although the official advice at this time seems to be that there is very little data to go off of, um, so far we have reason to believe that the variant is more transmissible, although not necessarily more deadly. So over the past few days, many countries have closed their borders to travelers from certain countries. Um, given the uncertainty, there's a bit of public frenzy. So in light of all this, I have two questions for you. One, what should be the appropriate initial public health response when we start to see this variant emerge and spread across the world? And two, given what we have seen throughout this pandemic, what is your prediction of what the public health response actually will be? So um, the, the, the right response to something like this, this kind of uncertainty, is is uh, is to is to work very hard to assess what evidence there is. Do not panic the public because that just creates demand for useless and harmful policies. Uh, and instead, uh, instead uh, provide the the public with sort of a, a transparent information about what's what's known to date. Um, th that's what we should have done in the early in the epidemic, and that's what we should be doing now with Omicron. Um, the the so just just to give some the listeners some sense about where we know what this is uh, November thirtieth what we know now is that two days ago we thought Omicron was only in South Africa and a few other southern South uh, countries in Southern Africa. Uh, it turns out that it's actually everywhere, uh, the, the, which is not surprising. This disease spreads very very rapidly. Um, it's not the, pro the predominant variant. Uh, Delta is still the predominant variant by far. What cases we've seen to date are mild. Uh, there are people in Israel, people in in uh, in Belgium, people in Scotland, in in Canada, where these Omicron have been identified. The reason why it was identified in South Africa first was because they actually have a pretty good system of surveillance for new variants. So it was a selection bias problem. The 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 the, uh, the people who were looking found it, and it turns out many of these countries including the U.S., weren't looking. And it seems likely that if we would look, we would find it. Um, there's no evidence to date that the vaccine, that, 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 that this variant evades the protection provided either by natural immunity or the variant or, or the vaccines. In fact, quite the opposite, as I said, uh, there are vaccinated people who have the, this, this Omicron variant that end up, uh, that, that actually have had very mild disease. So the vaccine protected them against severe disease. Um, so I think... Uh, and this is just after two days. The panic that was created around the initial 
um, finding about Omicron was vastly out of proportion to the uncertainty around what the, what was actually found found in the scientific evidence. Um, so I think the lesson is don't panic. Don't send messages about panic. It's hard conveying to the public uh, this kind of message when there is uncertainty in, within the scientific community itself. Um, but developing methods of conveying that information about how uncertain it is. So you say, well, look, it could be this, but it could also be nothing. It could be it could be very very little uh, risk. The uncertainty bounds allow all of that. That is reasonable to convey to the public. Instead, what has happened to the pandemic is anyone who conveys this idea that uh, some scientific development may actually have very low risk, and there's huge uncertainty bound around it, so they could go from low to moderate risk. While anyone who says that says that says, "Oh, you just uh, th this has happened to me." For instance, in the early days of the epidemic. Um, I wrote a piece before the Santa Clara uh, and the uh, zero prevalence study saying, look, it could be that this is a very widespread disease with very mild uh, infection fatality rate, or it could be that it's not that widespread uh, with a high infection fatality rate. Some very scurrilous people looked at that piece and said, oh, you predicted that it was a very low mortality rate. Well, no, I said this year's what the uncertainty bound is, um, given what data we know. Th that's the responsible thing to do. Um, you asked, what do I predict people will do uh, in, in response to this? And we've already seen this. With the, like, For instance, the travel ban from Southern Africa was an enormous policy mistake. We punished the place that had good tracking information for variants because they found it. And now countries are going to say, well, should we publicize when we find a new, new disease, a new variant? Because we're going to get punished for it. Um, uh, we're seeing uh, this sort of ramped up demand for law. I mean, Anthony Fauci gave a, a speech, uh, gave an interview where he said, well, we have to see, maybe we'll do lockdowns again. Well, that's completely irresponsible. The lockdowns didn't work previously, caused all this harm for putatively less transmissible variants. Why would we want to reimpose them now? It, it makes no sense. And, and again, uh, creating this sort of uh, this sort of uh, this aura of like, oh, we're, we're always going to be facing this like this risk that only that only the public health authorities can protect us from when, in fact, we already have tools to protect us from it. Tools like vaccines, better, better treatment, all kinds of tools that that now didn't happen, exist before. Um, a reassuring message would have been the right thing to do. And in fact, we've, but we've seen sort of the, the opposite from sort of the, the, the normal players in this. Okay, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm sure our viewers will love to hear your take. Um, so thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Bhattacharya. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate talking with you. So as always, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review, and we'll be back soon with the latest.